0: Well, good morning. It is a delight to be with you. The last installment of Wellspring this year. Seems like this just goes by faster and faster every year. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Every January, the President of the United States gives what he calls the State of the Union Address. And state governors give their State of the State Address. It's sort of an executive view perspective on how is the nation or the state going, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be addressed, what's going well. And typically, from the lips of an elected official, um, the elected official's own accomplishments are praised, and the elected official's agenda becomes the things which need to be fixed. What would it be like to have an accurate assessment of the state of the union? What would it be like to have an accurate assessment of the state of the state? What would it be like to have an accurate assessment of the state of your own heart? Not from your own flawed assessment, but from one who knows you better than you know yourself. From one who sees all things perfectly, from outward behavior to inward motives. Now, what we see in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3, are God's divine assessment of churches. Actual, literal, historical churches that existed in the first century in what is now modern Turkey. We call that Asia Minor. Uh, If you look in the book of Revelation, I'll give you my book of Revelation outline real briefly. And this comes from chapter 1, verse 19. There, John is seeing this vision of Jesus while he is imprisoned on the island of Patmos, right? It's the Alcatraz of the Mediterranean world. He was in jail because he loved Jesus and he's jailed on this island and he gets a vision of Christ. This is probably AD 95 near the end of the first century and he gets to see Jesus and the command coming from heaven is this verse 19, John, write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. There's your outline for the book of Revelation. John is to record the things he has seen. That's chapter 1, vision of Christ. The things which are, that is present tense from John's perspective. That's chapters 2 and 3. Those are the letters to the seven churches. That's how we know that those seven churches are the historical seven churches in seven cities in Turkey. Um, Not some sort of symbolic metaphor for... Seven regions today, or seven eras of church history, or anything like that. These were actual, literal seven churches in Asia Minor. John is told, write the things that you've seen, that is, the vision of Jesus, chapter one, write the things which are the present state of the churches uh, in Asia Minor, and then he says, and write the things which will take place after these things, um, which is the rest of the book of Revelation, still yet future from the perspective of John. Which gives us a couple of clues. John writes in A.D. 95, that means the events of Revelation did not take place in A.D. 70. That's a popular perspective. When Titus Vespasian rolled through Israel, demolished the temple, some people believe that a lot of the end times events happened there. Uh, But the very outline of this book, written after the destruction of the temple by two and a half decades, tells us that the things John writes about from chapter 6 on are still yet to come. Still yet to come. And his command is to write those things down. What we get to look at this morning is one of those letters to one of those churches that existed in the first century. We're going to look at Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. And and no doubt what you will do as we are listening to this letter is you'll be thinking about your own heart. That's a good thing. Even though this is a letter written to a church nearly 2,000 years ago the things that are written here are for us to hear as well. And we'll see that as we go on. Let's start by reading revelation chapter two verses one to seven and this letter to the church at Ephesus. This is Jesus speaking to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil. And your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together god as we examine this letter would you examine us you have been so patient long-suffering kind i pray that you would root out those things in our own hearts which are not pleasing to you more than anything god we want to love you and we do love you help our lack of love we don't always love you well We want to, I got, oh God, we pray that you would use this letter to this church written so long ago, uh, to do the kinds of things you'd like to do in our own hearts today. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. At Ephesus, we have an interesting opportunity to see the life of a church over several decades, not many opportunities like that in scripture. Um, We get to see Jesus' personal assessment of that church. We know a little bit about the church at Ephesus, and I want to talk about the church at Ephesus so that we can sort of put our feet in the shoes of believers at that church. This church had a prominent founding. The members and pastors of this church uh, produce a remarkable pedigree of leadership and instruction. From Priscilla and Aquila, that husband and wife team that had given their lives to making the gospel known in every city they went to, they spent time at Ephesus. Apollos was there. He was that man mighty in the scriptures, leading many to faith in Christ, who under Priscilla and Aquila grew even stronger in his understanding and proclamation of the truth. You had Paul there on his third missionary journey, 53 to 57 AD, likely stayed nearly three years at Ephesus, strengthening the church. And then Timothy was a pastor at Ephesus, and he received those two letters from Paul, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, letters to a pastor about how to do church while he was pastoring at Ephesus, 65 AD, and the second letter, 67-68 AD. It's also likely that the Apostle John himself pastored and served at the church at Ephesus from 66 AD on. It's likely that he was there for some time. You know that the church at Ephesus was birthed under some manner of persecution. You can read Acts 19 and Acts 20. Uh, the sons of Sceva were there. Demetrius the silversmith was there. Uh, the early church in its fledg- fledgling beginning was was hounded by those who were antagonistic to the gospel. Even hounded by demons and satanic opposition. If we were to read the letter to the Ephesian church penned by the Apostle Paul, we would see a rich treasure trove of doctrine and truth. The first 3 chapters established that church in sound doctrine. In Ephesians 4:14, 4, the church is encouraged to have discernment, not to be carried away by every wind of doctrine, but to be discerning about what is right and wrong. In Ephesians 4:17, they were encouraged to walk differently than the world around them. They were to be separated and different. In chapter 5, verses 6 to 11, more warnings come about compromise with the surrounding world. If we're to sum up some of those themes from the book of Ephesians, we would say that they are to have right doctrine and right behavior. The first and Second Timothy also give some important instructions. In fact, I want you to turn to First Timothy and see just a few of these. Remember, this is Paul's letter to Timothy while he is pastor of this church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1... Verse 5, Paul writes this to Timothy. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. There in the first chapter of 1 Timothy is a warning about false teachers embedded in the church chapter one, verses 18 and 19. Paul says this command. I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them, you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Paul warns the Ephesian church, not just about false teachers embedded in the church, but also about those who sacrifice their conscience and shipwreck their faith. Look at Second Timothy, chapter 4, verse 3. Paul warns, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. In Acts chapter 20. When Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders on the beach. He didn't get time to go all the way into Ephesus. But he met them down at the coastline. And warned them. Wolves. False teachers from among your own number will rise up in the church. From among the number of the elders. Could you imagine. What it would be like to be a Christian in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus. To be given such sound teaching, rich doctrine, thorough instruction about what to think, about how to behave, and then warnings against those who don't think rightly and don't behave rightly. You could see how the church at Ephesus would prize things that are very important to God on the pages of Scripture. It's hard to think of a church with a richer history or a greater depth of instruction or a stronger lineup of pastoral leadership. What does the church look like in AD95? How did they do? What does the state of the church addressed from Jesus in this letter? This morning we'll look at six elements of Jesus' evaluation of the church at Ephesus. There's going to be a salutation or a greeting. A commendation. See, greeting doesn't rhyme with all the Asian words we're going to use. Some of the other words don't rhyme either, so it doesn't matter. There's a salutation, a commendation, a confrontation, a command, a plea, and a promise. That's what we'll look at this morning. First, the salutation in verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Now let's think about the city of Ephesus. Right? The Ephesus isn't the church. Ephesus is the city in which the church resides. Uh, this was written some 35 years after Paul wrote Ephesians. And Ephesus had become the center of evangelism for Asia. Uh, Asia being that area of Turkey, the kind of the bridge point between the continent of Europe and what we now think of as Asia. It is the first city you would have come to in Asia. All Roman officials were required by law to visit the city when they came to Asia. Pergamum was officially the capital of the area, but all the government facilities were housed in Ephesus. I don't know you have a capital, but all the capital buildings are in Ephesus. It was that important of a city. It was the center of commerce and games. They had a 25,000-seat stadium. It was a wealthy seaport, and it was considered the marketplace of Asia. It was the center of worship for Artemis or Diana. Uh, They've rebuilt her temple in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. So if you want to go see the Temple of Diana, it's there in Nashville. Uh, It's impressive. It's a large building, but it was a center of cult prostitution and idolatry. It was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was 425 feet by 220 feet, kind of a rectangle, and 60 feet tall. With 127 marble pillars, 36 of which were ensconced in gold and encrusted with jewels... It housed thousands of priests and priestesses who carried on with their religious prostitution. In the center of Diana's temple was an inviolable inner sanctum. It was a refuge where the worst of the unrepentant criminals of the world, if they could only make it to Ephesus, if they could only make it to Diana's temple, if they could only make it to this great tree in the center, they would be safe, free from prosecution. No bounty hunters, no FBI agents, no Texas rangers dared trespass Diana's inner sanctum. And so it was a refuge for unrepentant criminals. You can imagine the type of culture that Ephesus would breed, that the temple would breed. Their immorality was world-renowned. In addition to the Temple of Diana, they also had two temples dedicated to emperor worship, which was a cult and a religion, but one that was required. In many of the churches in Asia Minor during the late first century, you actually had to worship the emperor by burning incense to him at various times in the year and get a certificate that you had actually burned incense to the emperor and you could not buy or trade in the marketplace without showing your certificate that you had successfully worshipped the emperor. And notice this greeting to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? And then Jesus introduces himself, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Each of the letters to the seven churches harkens back to the vision in chapter one, and Jesus in his greeting makes reference to the vision of himself back in chapter one. Let's read that vision in its entirety, beginning in verse nine of chapter one. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write. The things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's the vision of Christ from chapter 1. You think, wait, isn't John the apostle that leaned against Jesus and even uh, leaned on his chest during that Last Supper? Wouldn't he recognize this one? Yes, same John. And here he sees Jesus unveiled, uncloaked, and he falls down as a dead man. The disciple whom Jesus loved on his face. Jesus comforts him and commends him, commissions him to write. What does the vision in chapter 1 bring forward to this letter to the church at Ephesus? Well, Jesus refers to himself as the one who holds the seven stars, The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The stars are the angels of the seven churches. Chapter 1 verse 20. And the lampstands are what? The churches. The churches. Jesus walking amongst the lampstands and holding on to the angels that have some relationship to these churches. Is an indication that these churches are owned by Christ. He possesses the churches. He gives sovereign care to the churches. His walking amongst the lampstands is a picture of Christ's presence among the churches. He inspects them. He knows what takes place in his churches. And it indicates his ability to remove the lampstand. Jesus is present and sovereign and concerned in and among his churches. And fundamentally, what is a lampstand for? What does it do? Yeah, it's kind of a technical Greek word that means a stand for a lamp. It's a lampstand. In other words, the lampstand is not the light. What's the light? Jesus is the light. What is to be displayed on a lampstand? The lamp itself. Unnamed here, but it is Christ that is to be on display. These are his lampstands, and he is the light that the lampstands are to house and to display. That's the mission of the church. After the salutation of verse one, we come to the commendation and we find Jesus commendations in verses two and three. And then in verse six, in verses two and three, Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. And down in verse 6, and this you do have, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This commendation begins with Jesus' words, I know, I know. Now that's convicting and comforting. To a troubled church under persecution, to a church that is laboring hard and Persevering and enduring under trial, this would be a comfort. Jesus knows. Your suffering, your trials, your work are not unknown to him. It's not as if the church at Ephesus needed to write a letter to Jesus. Jesus writes a letter to them. He he knows. And when it comes to a confrontation, this will be convicting as well. Jesus knows. He knows what he says here in verse two, their deeds, that is their life and conduct are in keeping with Christ's likeness. Their behavior is on par. He says "And I know your toil and the word here is all out effort to the point of wearied exhaustion. This church has not been lazy. He says, I know your perseverance. That is courageous acceptance of hardship, suffering and loss over time. You know, it's, it's one thing to suffer a, a point-in-time trial. It's another thing to suffer it in duration. They did that. They persevered. He says, I know your intolerance, right? I know in the 21st century, intolerance is one of those bad words you should never say. <laughs> Jesus praises them for their intolerance, right? Like you would not tolerate arsenic in your ice water. Jesus was intolerant of false teaching in his church. And the church at Ephesus, likewise, was intolerant of evil men. They had an ongoing inability to bear with false teachers. That's commended. And he says, I know your trouble. There's trouble outside. Uh, from the very beginning, the seven sons of Sceva and Demetrius and an angry mob in Acts 19. To the temple of Artemis, the prominent feature of the culture of Ephesus. To the emperor cult. To the Jews. By the way... Uh, the Jews were given special dispensation by the Roman Empire. They didn't have to worship the emperor. They were recognized as the only legitimate alternative religion to emperor worship. Part of it was the Romans uh, wanted to Greekify the whole Mediterranean world. And they allowed the Jews to, to keep their own religion just to keep the peace. Because these were some stubborn people. So they got a special dispensation. What was interesting is when you were a Christian following Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, reading the Jewish scriptures called the Old Testament, you were de-synagogued. Which meant the Jews said, hey, they're not with us. And you're out from under the protection of the special dispensation, which means you're vulnerable to Roman persecution for not worshiping the emperor. That's the situation they were in. And Jesus knew about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were, were a group of professing Christians who openly practiced immorality. They said, you can have Jesus and you don't have to change. You can be an Ephesian and a Christian. Right? It's very possible that the Nicolaitans get their name from Nicholas. One of the deacons, the proto-deacons listed in Acts 6, who was originally picked in Jerusalem to help serve tables. Church history tells us that that Nicholas defected and took people with him. He was a false teacher. But he wasn't a false teacher saying atheism is the right way. He was a false teacher saying Jesus is the only way and you can live like I want to live too. It was trouble for the church. There were false apostles People who claimed to be getting direct revelation from God and instructing the church. They were deluded, self-deceived deceivers. And they weren't claiming to destroy Christianity, but they were offering a new version of it from the inside, corrupting it. They were posers, wolves, false teachers, just like Acts 20.29 20, tells us there would be in the church at Ephesus. And Jesus commends the church for endurance and perseverance. Verse three for their for his namesake. And this is a paradoxical commendation. He says, you have toiled to the point of weariness and yet you are not weary for my sake. It's a good commendation. They ran out the false teachers. They persevered under trial. They worked and they worked and they worked for Jesus Glory. The Ephesian church had practical holiness, theological discernment. They were uncomfortable with compromise. They suffered for the name of Jesus. They were exhausted in their loyalty to Christ, but they were not exhausted of their loyalty to Christ. I didn't emphasize those syllables correctly. They were exhausted in their loyalty. They were not exhausted of their loyalty. They were a mature, established, tested, and seasoned body of believers. There's some cues there for us in this commendation, right? Would, would we be commended as a church? Would, would you and I as individuals be commended? Would our homes be commended along these lines? Listen, there are movements in Christianity today that prize Jesus, but wouldn't pass this test, wouldn't be commended in these ways. They've allowed false teaching. They've tolerated false apostles They have welcomed those, anybody who will profess the name of Christ, but live however they want to live. They wouldn't pass this test. To be all about Jesus, and yet undiscerning, lazy, tolerant of false teaching, compromising with the world. You wouldn't be commended. The church at Ephesus, of course, was not only commended, there is also a confrontation. We see that in verse four. But I have this against you, says Jesus. Right? This is the scary part of the evaluation. What would it be like for Jesus to step into Grace Bible Church or step into your home or step into your presence as an individual and say, I have This against you. That's what Jesus said here to the church at Ephesus. And the confrontation is simple. You have left your first love. Verse 4. You have left your first love. That's very short, but it cuts. The word for left here is the word for a definite and sad departure. It's the word used for divorce or abandonment. What is this first love here is just stated generally Jesus doesn't uh, get specific here. Is this a love for God? Is this love for fellow believers? Is this a love for the lost? And and commentators and theologians have made cases for all three of those categories. Which one is it? Um, Which love is to be the first love? Well, what's interesting is the, the word here for first is not a word of first um, priority. Like, you have to love Jesus more than all these other things. That's true enough. But, or you have to love evangelism more than any other thing. Or you have to love each other more than anything else. It's not a love of first priority. It's the love you had at the first. It, it, it's a temporal idea. What Jesus is referring to here is the honeymoon days of the church. It was in nineteen eighty that Air Florida Flight Ninety took off from Washington National, had engine troubles, and plunged into the Potomac River. Seventy-four people on board were killed, four people in vehicles on the Seventh Street Bridge were killed, and several people survived the crash and tread water in the icy Potomac River. Priscilla Torado was one of their one of those. Lenny Skutnik was an assistant at the Congressional Budget Office, driving by, saw the crash, jumped out of his truck, threw off his boots, threw himself into the river, and pulled Priscilla Torrado to shore. Before Lenny jumped in, they, they threw her ropes that she couldn't grab. Her, her fingers were so numb that she just couldn't hold on. And so Lenny jumped in and rescue her. What would it be like to think back on those days if you were Priscilla? How would you think about Lenny Skutnik? What kind of memories would you have? What stories would you tell? Every day wouldn't you wake up and think about those moments? You have experienced a far better rescue Than Priscilla's you were far more helpless than she was and your rescuer is far more powerful, far more glorious, far better and brings you much more than simply a rescue from danger. He gives you himself in all of his infinite greatness. You not only have been rescued from danger, but you've been rescued unto the greatest thing ever, the greatest person ever. Do you think about your rescue? Do you remember what it was like to feel your danger for the first time? To be aware, uh, my sin makes my creator angry with me. And then to recognize my creator took on flesh and went to a cross to pay for my sins in my place as my substitute. To bring me to himself. I wasn't even looking to know him. I didn't even know he was the infinite treasure. And he rescued me. What was it like for the Ephesian church? What were their honeymoon days like? You see, I believe that the love that Jesus had in mind here involves all three of those loves we talked about. Love for God, love for others, love for the lost. They all flow out of the first. What is the greatest command? Love the Lord your God. What is the second greatest? Love others as yourself. Jesus himself said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. John 15:12 Jesus said, "This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you." He tells us to love our neighbors and our enemies. If you love Jesus, you will be drawn to love what he loves. Jesus loves his bride, the church, right? If we say we love Christ, but we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is to be deceived about our love for God. And if you love Jesus, you'll be drawn to love your neighbor. Jesus, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, helped define who our neighbor is, right? It's everybody. Love for the brother and love for others, they flow out of love for Christ. And if you notice your love for other people growing dim, waxing cold it is an indication that your love for christ has gone cold and if you love christ supremely you will love his bride if you love christ supremely you will not be able to help telling others about him the best evangelists are those who can't get enough of jesus who just love him and overflow with affection for him if you were to bump into priscilla Torado two days after she was pulled out of the Potomac River, what would she be talking about? What are you talking about today? What does Jesus say about His church at Ephesus? Love for Christ had grown cold. They had abandoned it. The Ephesian church was guilty of doing lots of work on that lampstand without paying attention to the light for which the lampstand exists. And how good is a lampstand with no lamp? Remember, the lampstand is the church. The lamp itself is Jesus. Hey, you've got a really nice lampstand there. You've been polishing that thing forever. Um, where's the lamp? Right? A lampstand with no lamp is nothing but a paperweight. It's a knick-knack collecting dust on a shelf. You see, doctrinal purity, theological fidelity suffering under persecution, those things are supposed to be a platform for the light of Christ to shine. They themselves are not the light. Jesus is the light. Our love for him can grow dim while we're busy doing things for him. Practical holiness, theological discernment, intolerance for compromise, these things are not designed to be the fuel of a long-lasting church. The fuel of the church is fervent, Personal love for God through Jesus Christ. And listen, those things, doctrinal fidelity, intolerance of false teachers, right behavior, all of those things are indispensable to the church, right? If you don't have those things, you don't get to be a lampstand either. But without love for Christ, you don't get to continue being a church. Here's the command in verse 5. Therefore... Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember is a present tense command. That is, keep on remembering from where you have fallen. You were in a place. You have fallen from that place. Remember where you used to be. Keep on remembering that. So keep on remembering. And then repent. This is more of a, not an ongoing command, but an urgent, do this right now, repent. A deliberate, decisive change of attitude resulting in a change of action. And then he says, return. Also a command. Do the things you used to do when love for Jesus was at the center. The Ephesian church had allowed the fruits of love for Christ to replace love for Christ. Doctrinal fidelity, theological discernment, moral rectitude, uncompromising loyalty. Where did these things come from? They all came from, originally, love for Christ. But subtly, imperceptibly, they had replaced love for Christ. The blazing center of the Christian life was set aside by the fruits of that blazing center. And listen, it's easy to see how that could happen. A church is birthed in the gospel and everything is new. Brand new believers who love Christ. It's exciting. They burned their magic books in the city square. Some 50,000 days wages worth of repentance. (laughs) Public display. They were glad to face rejection and persecution. That persecution and external pressure would eventually result in an isolation. Man, it's hard to just walk the city streets. Let's huddle together. Outside trouble promotes that protectionism. And then inside trouble, remember Acts 20, 28 and 29, there will be wolves among you, even from among the leadership. That inside trouble can breed skepticism and suspicion of one another. And pretty soon everyone's looking over their shoulder for someone who's going to compromise morally or someone who will teach something that is off theologically. It isn't long until a church begins to pride itself in its theological purity, its moral integrity, and its ability to discern error within and without. The central thing, the thing that makes a church a church, the reason a lampstand exists, the fire and the light of Jesus is no longer shining. A generation has gone by since the book of Ephesians was penned, and the church at Ephesus is in danger of going out of existence. The machinery of the church is still operating, The doors are open on Sunday. Sermons are preached. Songs are sung. Error is pointed out. Sin is exposed. Compromisers are run out of town. But the defining characteristic of the church, the defining characteristic of a Christian, is gone. Love has left the building. And this is no mere trifle. This is a fatal flaw. Look at Jesus' warning in verse 5. Or else... I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. This is not a reference to Jesus' final return. Or else I'm coming. Well, of course Jesus is coming. That's not an or else. This is an immediate personal corrective to be made by Jesus with the church at Ephesus. A church cannot survive merely on what it is against A church cannot define itself by what it is against. The church must be characterized by, defined by, and driven by love. Love for Christ. Love is to be the lifeblood of the church. And if it's not, then the church at Ephesus can no longer exist. To be useful to Christ, you must be inflamed with love for Christ, or you will be removed from usefulness as a lampstand. Now, here the grace and patience and kindness of our Savior. Verse 7, a plea. A plea. An invitation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's Jesus' kind way of saying, if you can hear what I'm saying, you're on my frequency, you're tuning in, listen. And those who are born of the Spirit will hear the Spirit's words here. This plea is designed to awaken the conscience of the faithful amidst the compromise of others. If you can hear what I'm saying, listen. Right? Jesus said this throughout the Gospels. He says it throughout these seven letters to the churches. And what's interesting here about this plea is it expands the application beyond A.D. 95 and, and a little church in a, in a wicked city in Turkey. This expands this to all believers of all ages. I love this kind of application where it's there on the page and says, listen, this is for anybody, (laughs) right? He who has ears, it's generic. Let him hear what the Spirit says. And notice, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. He's not just saying, you at Ephesus who can hear what I'm saying, listen to what I'm saying to Ephesus, but it's you who can hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Read all seven letters. Let them all be a state of the union address for your own heart. And then there's a promise, verse 7. The one who has an ear, let him hear. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes. Nikao is that great Greek verb. It's where we get our brand name Nike. Victory, overcomer. Right? 1 John 5.5 5 tells us an overcomer is someone, a super duper strong Christian who makes it to the very top of Christianity and survives all the trials. No. 1 John 5.5. 5. An overcomer is a Christian. That's the definition of a Christian according to 1 John. Same author using that word here. He who overcomes. A genuine believer. A genuine believer. And, and notice Jesus makes a promise. I will grant. I will grant. That's a, that's a grace word. Free gift. I will give. This isn't deserved. It isn't earned. It's just Jesus gives to his own. What does he promise to give? To eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heaven. You get heaven. You get everything. Everything with a sideways eight. You know, Infinity. Eternality, infinite treasure, God himself, the infinite maker of the universe, disclosing himself in successive measure to puny, finite-brained people forever and ever and ever, so that, as Jonathan Edwards said, every moment in heaven is better than the one before it, in ever-increasing, infinite joy. That's paradise. He uses the word paradise, which is an old Persian word, which translates Garden of Eden. Right. This is a book ends on your Bible. We started in the garden and we end up in the book of Revelation. By the way, I, I read this the other day. I think it's a great stat. The first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible are the only four chapters out of eleven hundred and eighty nine in your Bible where people don't sin. <laughs> Ever since Genesis three, we've been trying to figure out how to get back to Genesis one and two. Um, But only God can do that, and he takes us to a better place than Genesis 1 and 2. It's the eternal state in his presence. Having been redeemed and rescued and have access to all that he is and all that he's designed to give us. Notice how Jesus describes heaven, and the description of heaven in each of these letters is different. But here, he says, you get to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's an echo back to the Garden of Eden, but Jesus is doing something else too. He is picking out a specific feature of Ephesian culture and idolatrous immoral worship and is addressing it here. Remember that tree in the uh, temple of Diana was the asylum for unrepentant criminals. You committed crimes, you can go have safety in that tree. And, And Jesus says, no, in the paradise, the overcomer gets to have my tree, the tree of life. And, and uh, listen, am I as bad a criminal as anybody who would have sought asylum at, at Diana's temple? Yeah. Yeah. But repentance changes that. right? You, you, you don't flee to a tree as an unrepentant criminal. You'll always be an unrepentant criminal in that tree. You, you, you flee to God through Jesus Christ. And he gives you something better. Um, a new name. A new nature, a blank slate, perfect righteousness declared, new creation, an opportunity in heaven never to sin again. Really, this is too good to be true for people like us, Richard Baxter said in his Saints Everlasting Rest. Plug here, my favorite book on heaven. Nobody reads that one. Um, It's a good one. How can such a rich future be the reward of so vile a life? How can such a rich future be the reward of so vile a life? It's too good to be true. It really is. And yet it is the true future history of everyone who is in Christ. What an amazing promise. Hold on. Hold on. How did the church respond? church history tells us that Ephesus did repent collectively as a church and functioned as a witness to the love of Christ for at least another generation. But today, it's an Islamic state with very little representation of Christ. That's interesting. No church has survived 2,000 years of church history, right? No denomination has survived that long. No individual church body has survived that long. But Jesus' church, irrespective of the little human organizations of it that happen from time to time, Jesus' church prevails. We're here. Can you believe we're here? What are we to learn here? Well, we ought to learn from the commendations that Jesus gives, right? We're not to be content with doctrinal error. We're not to be comfortable with compromise morally. We're not to be naive about false teachers within the church. The church will be undone if the truth loses out to false teaching or if holiness is replaced by immorality. You don't get to be a church anymore if you compromise with the culture or give in to false teaching. But the message to the church at Ephesus is this. Doctrinal precision, moral rectitude, heresy hunting, do not in themselves define a healthy church. You have to work hard to maintain the fire of love for Christ at a personal level, at a heart level. We can't let the machinery of doing church overrun the primacy of doing love. Listen, it's much easier to do programs than it is to maintain fervent love for Christ, for each other, for the lost. As a church, as individuals, we must, we must continually cultivate warm, affectionate, deep, personal love for Jesus Christ, who loved us first and gave himself up for us. Joshua twenty three eleven. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love Yahweh your God. Take heed to yourselves. That sounds familiar for you, ladies, who have been walking through the build disciplines, right? What is discipline number one? You can peek at the back of your notebook. That's fine. I saw that. I, it's not a rhetorical question. That's a quiz. What does that look like in terms of what we just read about the evaluation of the church at Ephesus? What would it look like to shepherd your heart in light of what we just read? Some of that time that you're, that you're giving attention focus on the things that make your church look healthy, but, but don't forego that time spent with the Lord and cultivating that love. For mm-hmm. Yep. You lose that in your busyness. Yep, that's right. Yeah, it's the Mary Martha thing, right? You can prepare a meal and clean up the dishes out of love for Christ. But you can let those things replace love for Christ easily. Um, what are the what kinds of things do you have in your own life, in your own week, in your own schedule, in your own personal practice that help you cultivate love for Christ? Honeymoon love. Like, I just got saved, and it's so great kind of love. I think being very, very aware of how awful my sin is reminds me of how very, very amazing the fact is that God chose to save me. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed you didn't say, so how awful my sin was. Um, God hates sin. But it is a kindness of God that we have this period of time with still residual depravity for, I think, a deeper affection and love for our Savior, a deeper appreciation of what He's done for us. You know, if you think about a seasoned believer who's walked with Christ for six decades, if you ever meet one, um, ask him or her to... Open up. um, You will typically find someone who says, I am the worst sinner on the planet. And you're hearing this from someone who you haven't seen them sin in 37 years. (laughs) But they know their own heart. I think about the thief on the cross who, "Oh, I'm a criminal deserving of death. Oh, this is terrible. Jesus. Okay, great. Boom. In paradise. He didn't get a lot of time to meditate. Um, like you and I do. I mean, how grievous is it every time I sin, having known Christ? Um, and yet there, there is a silver lining to that cloud. I'm not endorsing sinning. What I am endorsing is when you sin, rehearse the gospel. Don't lose that opportunity. What else do you do to cultivate love personally in your own heart for Christ? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that comes easy. I mean, that's automatic. You just wake up and there's my Bible and I'm reading it, and, right? That no, takes work. You have to cultivate habits and patterns and fight against other habits and patterns. need each other. Anymore. Those conversations don't always come easy. Sometimes you have to force them and there's awkwardness. That's okay. If awkwardness results in this, I don't know how to word this question, but what do you like about Jesus? <laughs> and then a conversation starts. There will be mutual encouragement um, that... No, I, this is the Ephesians 4.16 growth principle. If each individual part of the body is working appropriately and then those individual parts are meshed together in, 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 where their lives are pressed together, um, then what you talk about spills into the lives of others. Right? My encouragement from the Word of God, from my Bible reading, from shepherding my own heart, will be an encouragement to someone that I talk to about it. And their being encouraged by my encouragement will be a greater encouragement to me. In other words, the sum is greater than its parts. One plus one doesn't equal two. But the church actually grows spiritually in maturity and love for Christ. What time am I supposed to end? Is it over? Are we done? Okay, we're done. Let's pray. (laughs) Lord, thank you so much for these ladies for their disciplined approach to uh, taking care of their own hearts, taking heed to their own hearts, watching over their own souls. We pray that they would find much fruit in it and that it would benefit this church, uh, that it would even be uh, the seedbed for the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.